0: I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. It's not controversial to say that the language we use to describe climate change is incredibly important. And frankly, it's something my mom, who happens to be an English professor, would I'm sure appreciate hearing, too. The term climate change was first used in 1854 in a U.S. magazine article that questioned the effect that humans had on climate. Fast forward, and the Oxford English Dictionary found that the use of the term climate crisis increased almost 20-fold over the last couple years. Yet, it's easy to get mired in abstract, Quasi-academic language like resilience, adaptation, and mitigation. Those terms are important, but it's why this episode in particular is so interesting to me, because it's about the creation of a new city official role, Chief Heat Officer. And it's not isolated to just one city. There are now Chief Heat Officers in Athens, Greece, Miami, Florida, and Freetown in Sierra Leone. So for a second, let that title sink in. Chief Heat Officer. It's clear, it's unambiguous, and it's blatantly honest about how cities around the world are beginning to address heat stress and why it's likely we'll see more of these positions and more intervention going forward. Dr. Eleni Miravili is the Chief Heat Officer for the city of Athens, Greece. She designs, leads, and promotes heat adaptation programs that protect people at risk while building better urban environments in Athens and beyond. From 2014 to 2019, she served as Athens' Deputy Mayor for Urban Nature and Climate Resilience, pioneering multi-million euro programs in equitable blue and green infrastructure development. She's also Senior Advisor and Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council's Arsht Rockefeller Resilience Center, which she joined in the summer of 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Eleni Mitavili. It's great to have you here and thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: It's nice to be with you.
0: Excellent. Look, and truth be told, this episode it really resonates with me. As a little kid, I used to live in Athens for 3 years from 1981 to 1984. So, there's a part of me that will always carry some attachment to the city. But let's talk about today. What I'd like to begin with is your role as chief heat officer it's a it's a new one with only 3 cities athens greece miami florida and freetown in sierra leone having appointed one can you tell us a little bit about the history of the role how was it conceived how was it received initially and what's the scope of the role and its oversight
1: ah uh, i love uh, <laughs> that's a really big question so it started It all started in the spring of 2021 with the mayor of Miami-Dade, who came in contact with the Arsh Rock Resilience Center of the Atlantic Council. And together they started thinking about how they could make the city of Miami-Dade more resilient to heat. And they appointed together the first chief heat officer. I've been working for the Ars Rock Resilience Center as a senior consultant, and we were planning to have Athens as the second city that we were going to focus on to help with preparing itself for extreme heat. And finally, Freetown Sierra Leone was the third city that came on board, and there's many more cities that we are planning to focus on, at least one per continent. And these cities are going to be cities that are going to be promoting different actions that make the city more ready for the extreme heat events that we are already experiencing, but also the even more extreme heat events that lie in our future. We've been kind of neglecting the fact that urban centers overheat. And we've been talking about global warming for many decades now, but somehow we haven't really been talking about cities and the fact that cities are much hotter than other parts of our planet and that cities also are inhabited by the largest percentage of our population right now and even more and more people are kind of attracted to cities every year and as temperature is rising i want to just remind that the last seven years have been the hottest years globally ever recorded in the history of the planet. So as the temperatures are climbing, cities are suddenly realizing that they have to do something about it. So this is what the chief heat officer is to do. It's basically a point of reference and somebody that can wake up every morning thinking about it and trying to mobilize systems and people in cities to make sure the inhabitants of these cities are more protected, their health is more protected and the cities are becoming cooler because it's not just the health, it's a a series of problems that extreme heat brings along with it.
0: Let's start with a little bit of scene setting. What exactly is at stake for the city of Athens? And, And I guess I've been looking at some research and there's some interesting one from the Dionysus Research and Policy Institute, which points to the fact that for every one degree Celsius temperature increase above 34 degrees, daily mortality increases by about 3% in Greece. And I guess I'm wondering with that said, how are these conditions unique and what makes Athens qualify as effectively the most heat stressed city in mainland Europe?
1: It's not the most heat-stressed city in the mainland Europe. I don't think we qualify for that, but we definitely qualify as one of the most heat-stressed capitals of Europe, at least in the mainland. Also, yes, when we're talking about cities in general, the cities that are in the south, the Mediterranean cities, are, are more vulnerable to to extreme heat, because we know that the Mediterranean is the part of the planet that is supposed to see uh, extreme events in relation to heat and drought in the future. So all of the cities in the Mediterranean are vulnerable, and Athens, among them, is one of the most vulnerable, exactly because it is very densely built and very densely populated. And it's very much to the south, right? So in a study that took place three years ago, I think from the Newcastle Polytechnic in England, among five hundred and seventy one cities in Europe, Athens was probably one of the two or three that had the most were at most risk for extreme heat and drought. And another report from Moody's also pointed out that Athens in the future will be will probably have a lot of problems unless it it starts to adapt to the extreme heat in relation to being able to apply for loans and apply for credit ability will by, by um, the fact that uh, heat is rising because it probably will mean that its tourism sector might um, be challenged as well as other productive sectors and generally the commerce of the city will probably be affected by extreme heat. Yeah.
0: These issues seem to have caught a lot of attention over the last year. The European Central Bank published a paper called Climate Change and Monetary Policy in the Euro Area, where it highlighted the systemic and subsystemic risk that climate change posed around, as you said, Southern Europe and Southern European countries. And like you said, with regard to Moody's, the credit rating agencies have also noted these similar climate concerns. And I'm wondering, how has this part of the discussion changed the tenor and the urgency of what you're working on? Because now it really kind of feeds into sort of the economic sustainability of cities like Athens.
1: You see, Jason, in the past, the policy makers and the decision makers in Greece have not been taking climate change very seriously, because we were always very concerned with other types of crisis, like, you know, economic crisis and recession, or the immigration and refugee crisis that we faced. And and climate change seemed to be something that is happening elsewhere. Uh, At least until very, very recently, it wasn't really in the agenda, neither of the media nor in the political agenda of our leadership. So the more it becomes an issue that has very clear economic aspects and economic impact to it, the more politicians are uh, opening their ears to it. And so it's kind of interesting to say that even more than I think health, Impacts. I think economic impacts are something that can actually move people more because even health impacts with these extreme phenomena, we had like this summer in Athens, we had this extraordinary heat wave. So of all the extreme weather events, heat is the one that claims more lives. However, we often um, don't hear much about it from the media. But this summer, I don't know if you remember, but we had the extreme heat events in the Pacific Northwest that claimed many, many lives. And then we had in the Mediterranean this enormous heat wave. And even though we had extraordinary temperatures in Greece and for a very prolonged period of time and then wildfires and the, and the skies turned gray and we had ash falling for days in on our homes and on our balconies. And even though there was all this extreme event, we, we didn't hear much about what were the impacts of it except from the wildfires. And the impacts were... were it seems several thousand people that lost their lives, but the newspapers, nor the media ever really reported on it. And it was through European media that I read that they believed that based on correlation to the previous five years of the same, during the same dates, the mortality during the same date and taking out the mortality from COVID, they figured out that between the end of July and the middle of August, which was when the heat wave was taking place in Athens and in Greece in general, we lost about 2,300 lives. So, this is something that goes to show that there is a lot of underreporting that links heat waves to mortality and morbidity. And there's also underreporting that links heat waves to uh, work related injuries. Now, we have several studies that have shown that there's an extraordinary relationship between work related accidents and rising heat. So all of these things are are relatively underreported. And even when they do get reported, they could kind of attract a lot of attention for a short period of time. And then they kind of get forgotten. So to take this long road to go back to the idea of the economic impact. I think that the economic impacts are something that can really have, politicians have learned to deal with these issues and to plan about these issues and to kind of try to figure out and understand how much it affects, how much they can be re-elected, their electability. Correlating extreme heat to its economic impacts is actually Becoming a game changer as far as politicians and how they are starting to mobilize around, preparing for heat.
0: Hmm. I'm wondering, how are you addressing heat stress in terms of a policy agenda? What do those short-term and long-term solutions look like? I've heard you speak before about sort of greening cities, about short-term solutions like air conditioning, which are a bit of a double-edged sword, as well as the importance of raising awareness.
1: Very much so. Yes. As you mentioned in three parts, in three different pillars, the first part has to do with raising awareness because, again, there's very little knowledge about how dangerous heat is for the human body. The human body is not made for the types of heat that we're facing because of climate change. Neither are our cities, for that matter. Our cities are built in a deadly, I mean, really deadly way as far as heat is concerned, but that's kind of the third pillar. So the first pillar has more to do with raising awareness of how dangerous heat is for urban populations. And the main thing that we're doing is that Athens is going to be one of the first cities in the world to categorize heat waves, and we believe that that's going to be a really important move because not only will you be able to describe the heat wave, like to have ways to talk about the heat wave more clearly. Let's say if you are a person in the media, but also as a as a decision maker, you'll be able to decide what to do when. So this new categorization that we're working on is a totally novel type of methodology that links heat waves and meteorological data to health data, mortality and morbidity. So each category actually will be talking about the percentage of risk for human life that each heat wave will bring, which will, of course, as I said, facilitate People to communicate about how risky or how dangerous the heat wave that we will be expecting next week will be, but also policymakers to put into effect specific measures that will protect especially their most vulnerable populations. So this is one kind of category. The second pillar or category of actions, I mean, in the first category of awareness, we have other things as well, which has to do with, of course, campaigns and and, uh, a specific smartphone app that we have developed called Extrema Global, which gives people a personalized sense of risk where they are, depending on on their age and, and their gender and stuff. So this is the first thing of kind of raising awareness.
0: Eleni, do you mind me asking yes. because I've heard you talk about before no. you know sort of this this importance or the need to have named heat waves, and we obviously have named storms you know or sort of other meteorological extreme weather events mm-hmm. but the, this is this might be a naive kind of question on my part, but why don't we have named heat waves? Is it because relative to other extreme weather they don't create the kind of infrastructure damage
1: I think my, my naive answer would be. Would be yes. I think that they are heat waves in general, have not been, nobody has been paying much attention to them. And I think to a large extent because they're not visibly very exciting. So, what to report about them, what to say about them? And again, even though they're the number one killer of extreme weather events. There's very little knowledge about them circulating, and I think, to a large extent, exactly because they're not visually appealing. Like, what, what do you say about the heat wave? Mm. I it's like what do you describe about it? It's it's silent and it's invisible, and it basically leaves you know dead people in its in its wake if they are ever reported. So we don't name them, but more than naming, because naming, I think this is my personal opinion, naming is not as important as categorizing, because categorizing really gives a sense to people about the danger that comes along with them. And as you said, it's usually categorizations have to do with destruction of property and kind of the, of the physical world, of the physical plane, while heat is actually related to bodies and the effect it has to bodies. That's what the impact is. So we had to do a different types of measure. Also, another part of this answer should be that all of these things, the categorization and the naming hasn't really happened in relation to heat waves, because heat waves are very idiosyncratic. They affect differently based on when they happen, where they happen, and how they happen. So for example, the same heat wave could happen in the beginning of the summer and have and be much more dangerous than if it happens at the end of the summer, because the body actually becomes more accustomed to the heat by the middle of by the end of the summer. So we have less impact as health is concerned. Or the same heat wave like a heat wave of thirty let's say seven degrees, can be extremely deadly if it happens in a city in the north of Europe uh, as opposed to a city in the south of Europe. It also depends on what kind of humidity there is or what kind of wind there is, whether people are you know, are, are in the cities or have moved to the country at that particular time in the summer, etc., etc. So it's really difficult to to organize them and to categorize them. People have been avoiding it, but we have to make them more... Prominent. We have to make them more visible. And I think the categorization is going to be a very, very, a, a game changer, I believe.
0: I understand. Got it. And so the other two policy solutions.
1: So the other two policy solutions is the whole idea of creating a preparedness plan, which, which falls under the category of short-term uh, actions. Like what do you do when you do have a, a heat wave? How can you best prepare for it? And basically that means how do you best prepare for the vulnerable populations and who are the vulnerable populations? The usual suspects, like the poor people, most of, mostly, right? The poor people that are energy poor and housing poor, more particularly. So they are uh, extremely vulnerable to heat waves. Also, people that uh, live alone, older people above 60 years old are very vulnerable to heat waves. Often they get a fog, which makes difficult the decision making, makes it much more difficult for them to take the right decisions to protect themselves. We also have vulnerable populations among the very young. So the young children, they can't balance the body heat very easily. So they are very vulnerable women that are pregnant, people that are working in manual jobs, whether outdoors or indoors without air conditioning. So these are in general the most vulnerable. We are starting to create together with representatives from, from different stakeholders around these very vulnerable populations, what kind of preparation can we do to make sure that they are best protected during heat waves? And we're also kind of collaborating with different cities and figuring out what has worked and what hasn't worked at different cities around the world. For example, right now in Athens, we have this thing thing called Help at Home Plus, which has a whole network of people that work in the municipality of Athens who check with people that are living alone, that are below the poverty level. But we can only right now support about 400 people. We need to make this network much, much larger, get people from the neighbourhoods, to volunteers to actually be checking in and we need to train them to know how to help. For example, thermal, create thermal comfort within houses of people, DYI kind of ways to cheaply create thermal comfort within houses of people, but also to just kind of make sure that they can recognize different signs of thermal fatigue among people. What happens when your body is overheating and your circulation starts getting out of work and, you know, different types of organs can be affected. So this is like a, an example. Another example has to do with uh, figuring out how not to have blackouts, which is a more centralized kind of decision-making issue. These are two very, uh, to, to give it like the, the big spectrum of what a preparedness plan could include. And finally, the third pillar, which might be the most important, is... How to make our cities cooler, and this most more than anything else includes bringing nature into cities, many more trees, a lot of shady trees, bringing water to the surface, and using all types of cooling materials and cooling techniques so that we can make sure that the city doesn 't overheat because cities are 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 really deadly the way they've built. These big buildings that are made out of cement and glass and steel are really raising temperatures and becoming death traps for us. Why is
0: air conditioning a double-edged sword? We talked about this earlier, but I've heard you speak about how roughly the 1.6 billion air conditioning units globally consume as much energy as the entire continent for. Africa's energy needs. So I guess my question is, how do we reduce our long-term dependency on air conditioning as a solution?
1: It's a, it's a race. We have to figure out how to cool the cities before billions of populations that are coming out of poverty start buying air conditioning units and throw totally out of whack our efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions for lowering uh, our global temperatures. So air conditioning really sucks energy. Like few of our the different things that we have in our homes, uh, different appliances, air conditioning is one of the most voracious uh, energy consuming uh, appliances. So it creates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, which means that it contributes to global warming. Also, it creates a cooler atmosphere indoors, but it actually blows hot air in the public space. So it's a very egotistical appliance It's, a, it's a, a, with, because it's, it only, it's used only for the apartment or the workspace that is, it's cooling, but it's basically heating up the city. So which creates a vicious circle because you need more air conditioning. The whole thing is it's a bad equation. The the idea that that right now we really need air conditioners because we do. We do need air conditioners because they are they make the difference between life and death in a lot of our cities. So we have to reduce the temperatures in cities by creating cooler cities, like we said before. And we also have to find ways that we create air conditioning That works in different technology. We really need innovation in our cooling systems so that we can have cheap units that can rely on renewable energy to cool indoor spaces without really heating the outdoors and without really using a lot of uh, any fossil fuel. And this is, this is really important. Like we really need people to figure out, engineers to figure out really fast how we can create these types of units that are very effective in cooling the indoors, but they don't have all these really nasty kind of side effects.
0: This notion of behavior change is emerging and becoming more and more popular. I'm starting to pick it up more and more. We've seen it in the IEA, the International Energy Agencies net zero by 2050 report, where it literally kind of points to behavior change being responsible for between, I think, 8 to 10% of total emissions decline. You're finding it in other government policies around the race to net zero, most recently the UK's. And I'm wondering, how do you think about it in a policy context? In what way can you kind of start to guide consumption behavior in terms of incentives or even disincentives, think subsidies or changes Mm -hmm. in taxes, Mm -hmm. to fulfill some of the outcomes you're working towards?
1: So behavior change is one of the most important things that we are facing in relation to all of the climate-related issues. Again, there's a lot of effort looking into what is effective in creating a behavior change and what isn't. In relation to heat specifically, it's very interesting that in Greece and in Athens, it's really difficult to get to people to change their behaviors even when I speak about rising heat and how even friends of mine or people in my own family during days that the heat is is very high they don't really take it seriously they don't It's something that is particularly dangerous. What I'm trying to say is that countries that are used to being hot, people that are used to be dealing with heat in the summer, they really are not prone to just change what they're doing, to understand that we're talking about a different kind of level of risk these days because we're talking about different types of temperatures and different types of periods of longer and stronger periods of extreme heat. So it's really an issue to get people to really change the way they act. So part of what we've been doing is we've been trying to create here enough focus groups and to discuss about this, to discuss about where they get, where people get their information and what kind of information they get and what would make them actually change the way that they go about their everyday, Uh, what kind of information would actually help them change their impact. And on the other hand, we have to kind of go into measures that kind of really educate people about what these risks are, and give kind of specific data about what types of, of risks people are are dealing with, because again, there's a big vagueness and general obscurity about that to a larger extent, because we don't have enough data about that readily available. And now there's a big rush all around the world to get more specific data about the impacts of extreme heat, both on the body, but also in relation to you know, different things like the economy or our everyday life in the cities. So the other thing is that when we do have extreme heat, we do see Governments actually stepping in and putting measures such as, you know, that the industry sector has to close between the hours of 11 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. And people cannot work, especially people working in manual jobs or redirecting energy from the industrial sector, closing down the energy supply to the industrial sector and moving it over to the residential sector. So these are very important kind of decisions that have taken. From central government or actually regional or or even city government as far as they can affect these types of sectors in the everyday life of people in cities.
0: Can you talk about all of this in the context of energy poverty? Energy poverty has become an incredibly important issue, particularly for policymakers over even the last six to nine months following the extreme volatility and higher prices in global energy markets. But but that tends to reflect a combination of generally winter-related heating and geopolitics right now. So what does energy poverty mean in the context of heat stress? It's
1: an incredibly big issue in the context of heat stress. In Greece, in Nelson's, we have, we have found out that we have up to a 24, 25% of people have trouble with paying their energy bills. And this has been true for the last several years. So it has only gotten worse now because of the international crisis that you describe the energy kind of inflation that you described in the summer again we we have seen that a lot of homes are extremely hot Uh, because of the way that the houses are built they tend to get uh, hot and to keep the heat in and to and for people that are not able to turn on some kind of air conditioning The night hours become extremely hazardous for people's health because the night temperatures don't go down and the body never kind of cools down. So it goes back into the next day that the heat kind of rises again, having accumulated all the heat of the previous day. So this is what sends a lot of the people to the hospital. So the issue of not being able to turn on an air conditioning is really an issue of life and death. And if you have a percentage of people that is so high, if you say that one out of four people actually have difficulties in doing it and choose not to do it, then you have to have some kind of support, specific measures that come from the government to economically support this particular population. I have not seen yet any decision-making that gives free energy during extreme heat or extreme cold weather. Governments tend to give some kind of subsidies afterwards, some kind of, I mean, some kind of bonuses or some kind of subsidies for people that are below the poverty level. But the whole thing has to really change. And part of what we're talking about is getting the insurance companies involved. There's interesting uh, products that insurance companies are creating that might help cities deal with issues like providing energy, for example, for the most poor households, by rolling out some kind of instruments that provide funding to cities when there is a prediction for a heat wave. So usually what we do is we need to get involved after the problem. But the, the whole idea is to, especially with climate-related challenges, to go before the problem and provide the different types of funding to the city when it most needs it to protect its most vulnerable
0: that's actually quite interesting and, and sort of feeds into the podcast episode that we just had on with the world bank treasury who's was working around cat bonds catastrophe bonds although not yes. in a heat wave context but i think that would be an argument to say that we need named heat waves in the way that we use named storms for instance as some sort of measure to release those funds to kind of calibrate those bonds
1: yeah, no, again, not names, but categorized.
0: Yeah, yes, So yes. if
1: you get a category two, yeah, or a category three, and, and this type of insurance um, instruments that we're looking at, this is with the Extreme Heat Resilience Alliance of the Arch Rock Resilience Center, we're looking at, we have like people that are uh, working in the insurance sector, and there are parametric insurance instruments that do risk transference, but basically the whole point is like, how do you prepare and act before the event happens so that you get the most impact for the money that you actually put in.
0: How much room do you have to rethink and and even re-architect Athens' urban planning model? What are the primary metrics that you track (laughs) and manage to? I've heard some cities get very focused, for instance, on greening in terms of square miles of green space per person.
1: Yeah, lift question has two aspects to it. The one of it is how big is my mandate? Like how much can I actually affect and how much is my power in affecting things? And the second one is like how I measure things. And these two are not necessarily (laughs) related (laughs) because, in between these two, there's like the people that have the actual power, whether the people that actually have been voted into positions and that have to prioritize and really want to change things. So, specifically, the mayor of Athens is a mayor that has been very much interested in supporting the existing green that we have in the city, the existing uh, urban nature that we have in the city, uh, and also creating new spaces. But it's not really big enough as we need. We don't have the time to to kind of take incremental steps. We don't have time to start kind of doing small pedestrianization, like one or two or three pedestrianization of streets and kind of put some trees to make sure that, you know, there is more shade and also create kind of more bicycle roads, etc. We really need to radically transform the city and to make plans to really radically take space from cars and give it to trees and give it to walking people and people that do this, what we call slow mobility. We really need to change the public space and how the public space is organized right now. And this comes back to what you were saying before, which is like, how do we get people to change their ways? I don't think we have a choice. I think it's going to become more and more clear that we don't have a choice in the next couple of years and that more and more people will be radicalized in actually moving fast forward with changing cities.
0: How are you thinking about the city's energy and infrastructure, given that cooling, air conditioning that we've talked about requires a lot of energy. How do you align increased demand for summer power capacity for air conditioning with decarbonization goals? How do you think about prioritizing climate mitigation versus adaptation, or at least trying to find a balance between the two?
1: This is an international discussion that is taking place right now because we've been focusing a lot on mitigation and we haven't been talking a lot about adaptation and even less about how to really marry the two things. Because in some sectors, as in the air conditionings, we have like conflicting priorities, and it's really difficult to marry them. What it seems more and more clear to me is that we really need a transformation of the cities. And the transformation includes a lot of different sectors. We have to go systemically and create resilience in cities. So we can't kind of see one sector... Um, separately from another sector. We really have to figure out what are the types of initiatives and, and the type of changes that we need to bring that actually do not affect negatively other sectors, but work together to both lower emissions and kind of protect the vulnerable people in cities. So I'm not giving you a specific answer to your question. I don't think the solutions are very clear yet. We need a lot of innovation to take place, as we said before, in the different technologies that we have. We need also to make sure that we have a much better energy mix in the type of, like, to really make sure that our renewables are, are much, have a much higher percentage in our energy production mix. But what is very, very clear to me is that all of the measures that need to be taken will make our cities more beautiful and more, desirable to live in. So what motivates me in my everyday life is not just the fear of how cities will become less and less inhabitable, but also the fact that if we do change things, if we do reduce emissions by taking cars out of cities, if we do figure out how to kind of have less kind of crazy use of air conditioning that create these stupid air conditioning curtains when you go into department stores or, you know, all of these crazy ways that we are consuming energy. And if we do manage to bring more nature and bring water more to the surface of our cities and find kind of ways that... Mobility is not one car per person, and it creates more car sharing, and it's more related to electricity, etc. All these things, in my mind, are creating more beautiful and more desirable cities. My view of the future is, is a beautiful one.
0: Hmm. I'm certainly sympathetic to these times. I mean, for all policymakers, I mean, the fact that we talk about the energy trilemma, this idea that we're trying to solve for three things, decarbonization, security of supply, we, we need energy security. And as we've talked about price affordability, we can't create a new class of, of energy poor out of this. And particularly with energy prices this high and the degree of ambition and legislation around decarbonization, there's a lot of pressure in terms of kind of trying to achieve all three of those at the same time.
1: That's true. And, and the problem is that they are front-heavy. All these investments have a really front-heavy cost that quickly gets paid back. But in the beginning, a lot of money has to be invested now in the beginning in order to move to the translation that we need for all these changes.
0: So it's been fascinating to discuss how heat-stressed cities are responding from a policy perspective, what the role of chief heat officer means, and why it's likely we'll see more and more intervention by cities to help mitigate and adapt to climate change. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, Co-Head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Dr. Eleni Miravili, Chief Heat Officer for the City of Athens, Greece. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Eleni, for your time today.
1: Thank you, Jason, for your great questions and for the
0: discussion. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri-podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at Jason.Mitchell@man.com.